Bean Tom's True Crime Podcast. Boston is a great city, but there's more to it than the Freedom Trail in Fenway Park. There's a startling underbelly to the city, and Boston Confidential will take you on a guided tour of the dark side of the Athens of America, Boston, Massachusetts. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Boston Confidential. My name is Barry McGuire, and I'm your host. I'm a 20-year private investigator in Boston, and I currently run a company called Impact Due Diligence Investigations. We conduct in-depth background investigations for the financial services and business communities. But if you need something in terms of investigative services, feel free to give me a call. And if I can help you directly, I can certainly refer you to the correct agency or individual. I've recently written a book called The Business of Private Investigation, Tips and Tricks to Jumpstart Your Agency, which is available on Amazon if you're interested. I also am a relatively frequent contributor to Pursuit Magazine. Several of my articles have won some awards with Pursuit, and if you want to check them out, just look up Pursuit Magazine on the internet and enter Barry McGuire in the search bar, and I believe my article should come up. All right, as for today's show, guys, I was just a little bit tired of all the innocent blood and guts we go through on this podcast. It's the nature of the beast, I get it, but I was just getting a little tired. So I'm going to go to my fallback, one of my favorite cases in New England, the Brinks job in the 1950s, actually 1950 itself. This was the largest robbery I know in Massachusetts history, and I think in the history of the United States as well, the robbery took place on January 17th, 1950, and the heist was facilitated at the Brinks headquarters at the intersection of Prince Street and Commercial Streets. And if you're trying to figure this out in your head where exactly that's located in Boston, it's relatively close to the Boston Garden and where the bridge goes from Boston's North End to the Charlestown neighborhood, that's where the Brinks job was. It's a massive building, which I believe now is a garage. I believe most people in Boston have heard of the Brinks job. It's talked about pretty frequently. And there was actually a pretty good movie made about it in 1978, starring Peter Falk. It's actually a pretty classic movie. I don't know how much it really had to do with the inner workings of the heist, but it's definitely worth a watch. Google that, The Brinks Job, it's called, and it kind of gives you a feel for old school Boston, the criminality, the underworld. In that regard, I do believe the movie does mirror real life. There are some very interesting characters in this heist, and the movie comes up with a few good lines. Um, one of my favorite movie lines of all time is said by Peter Falk. Peter Falk portrayed the leader of this gang of misfits. Actually, they weren't misfits. They were actually high-level crooks, but he portrays Tony Pino. He's the leader of this gang who did the Brinks job. And Peter Falk says at the time, the police are coming to his apartment in the North End to interview him or arrest him for the Brinks job. And one of the cops says, Tony, you're going to go down for 10 years for this job. And Tony Pino responds, what are you talking about? Murderers don't do a pound in this state. And it was funny because it was accurate. 
frequently murderers in Massachusetts don't do 10 years. And that's the pound Tony Pino was talking about. All right, so let's go to the robbery, around the time of the robbery anyway. So it's the 1950s in Boston. Boston police aren't making much money. The crooks are making some decent dough. The war had just ended and people had returned home from World War II. Our involvement in Korea was heating up, but a lot of people hadn't yet been drafted. And the area around the North End in Boston was teeming with criminals. And this group, Tony Pino's crew, was a very able group of burglars and robbers. And all of them had spent time in prison and they'd all worked together before and everybody on the street knew each other. The police knew the criminals. Sometimes they were, you know, involved. Sometimes they turned a blind eye and sometimes they arrested these guys. So everybody knew one another. There was a huge prison in Charlestown and Tony Pino had just gotten out of prison there and was looking for work when he started dreaming up this heist. And the movie kind of portrays these guys as a bumbling, lucky group, but they weren't. They were second story men. They were legitimate burglars. They didn't want to use violence, but if they had to, they would. But they avoided most of that and concentrated on high value targets. Tony Pino had been looking at the score for years. Actually, the Brinks company was originally located on Federal Street in Boston, and that's where they were originally looking to do this robbery. But they moved from Federal Street in downtown to an area where this warehouse was on Commercial Street because it was just better egress and ingress into the city. And they thought they could secure this building much better. But once they moved to the North End, the Brinks Company was basically in the headquarters of organized crime and crime in general in Boston. The North End was the home of the Italian Mafia at the time. And I believe the rackets in Boston were run out of Federal Hill in Rhode Island at the time, but Prince Street, which is adjacent to the Brinks Company, was the headquarters of the Angelo family, which actually ran Boston for Raymond Patriarca, the godfather of New England, who was in Rhode Island. So the Brinks Company basically moved from a safe area in downtown Boston to the North End, which was the headquarters of crime. Also, adjacent to the North End was a neighborhood called the West End. And that was teeming with tenement buildings, triple deckers. And it was actually a worse neighborhood at the time than the North End. The North End, as I'm describing it in the 1950s, was a bunch of tenements. Today, the North End is a desirable location, although everything is super small in this little Italy section of Boston. The apartments go for 4000 a month now. I think Tony Pino's head would spin at that. So one thing that benefited the gang as Brinks moved from Federal Street to the North End was the rooftops. The gang knew everybody in the North End and went up on the roof and watched the Brinks employees with binoculars for months. And again, 
the movie kind of portrays these guys as a bunch of bumbling stiffs. But when I tell you a little bit more about the intricacies of the robbery, they're anything but that. They did a hell of a job on this, and I can't wait to tell you about it. And I'm going to tell you all about it right after break. Listen up to my commercial, and I'll get right back with you. Are you a local or international law firm that needs accurate, comprehensive, and timely background investigations and litigation support? Let Impact Due Diligence Investigations do the legwork. If there's information you need for a case, we'll find it. When you need to know, call Impact. Visit us at impactduediligence.com. All right, guys, we're back. And I'm ready to tell you about what at the time was called the heist of the century, the crime of the century, really. And the media attention in Boston at the time was before I was born, but my research bears it out. And everybody still talks about this score to this day. The media attention was probably equivalent to, I don't know, the Scott Peterson trial. I don't want to compare it to the O.J. Simpson trial because that was nationwide. But every day for years, this was in the newspaper and everybody was speculating on who could have committed this crime. Just to put this score in perspective, at the time in 1950, $1,218,000 was taken from the Brinks. In today's dollars, that's about $29 million in cash. There were some checks and securities involved, but $29 million in cash. So this was Tony Pino's score originally. I'll tell you a little bit about him. He was a thief from the day he came to America. He came over to America, to the North End, from his native Italy. By all accounts, his parents were stand-up people, but by the time they got here with young Tony, it was hard to make a living, especially in the North End. It was teeming with people. There wasn't enough work to service everybody, and many immigrants turned to crime, organized crime and otherwise. Tony Pino started getting arrested as a young boy, and he was actually shot in the buttocks at about age 12, according to a book I read about the score. And he continued on this path. But one thing that really hampered Tony Pino is he wasn't a citizen. He was an illegal alien from Italy. And when he arrived here, they could have applied for citizenship, but neglected to do so. I believe his mother, father, and siblings ended up being naturalized citizens, but Tony Pino never really cared about that. He loved to steal. He's one of those people who just really get off on boosting. You could probably make a comparison to some of the people you see in Goodfellas or other mob movies where they just love what they do. They love to steal. That was Tony Pino. And the other members of his crew, and there's a lot of them, I'm going to give you their names, but they were basically the same group of people. They were in and out of prison. They stole, drank, caroused, and that's the type of crew we're dealing with here for the Brinks job. The pivotal members of the gang were naturally Tony Pino was the leader, and there was Vinnie Costa, who was Tony's brother-in-law, Jazz Maffey, Spex O'Keefe, who was the muscle on this job, and he was the muscle because he was an Iwo Jima vet. And people said he was a little unstable, and I would think Iwo Jima would tend to do that to you. I think today you'd probably call it PTSD, but he was a bit nuts, Spex O'Keefe. And the other members were Joe McGinnis, Sandy Richardson, Stanley Gus Sikora, Henry Baker, 
and James Flaherty. There may be others involved with the heist, but these are the individuals who have been named. So that's what I'm going with right now. So the crew started surveilling the Brinks building from rooftops on the north end. And pretty soon they got the routine of the Brinks employees down. And shortly thereafter, members of the gang would go into the Brinks office, the whole building, really, basically at will. Again, this differs from the movie. These guys were good at what they do. They actually broke in on an almost nightly basis and conducted reconnaissance inside the building. At a certain point, they removed all the locks from the building that they would need during the robbery, sent them out to a local locksmith and had keys made, returned them before the morning came and nobody was the wiser. This gang seemed to be experts at problem solving. At one point, they broke into an alarm company to try to get the layout, the blueprints for this building. So after all their work, they knew when the Brinks employees would come and go, when money would come and go. They had keys to every door that they needed, and they just needed to take these guys by surprise. According to the FBI, the gang made six attempts, and I believe they get this directly from a participant. They made six attempts before the actual robbery. Okay, so that brings us to the day of the robbery. It was January 17, 1950, and everything seemed to be a go. According to the FBI, five to seven armed robbers entered the building, some of them wearing rubbers, you know, rain gear on the shoes so they couldn't be heard walking about. They did what they could before they took the guards hostage, but they ultimately took the guards hostage. The guards later reported they were treated pretty well, but they just began taking the money and it was sacks and sacks of money and securities. They had stolen a car from an area near Fenway Park and loaded up. It was actually a truck. They loaded up the truck out front and the FBI said the robbery took about 17 minutes or so from anywhere between 7.10 p.m. to 7.27 p.m. So these guys were in and out like a flash. They left some evidence. They left a rope, a mask, and some adhesive tape, but they weren't worried about DNA in those days. So they just went about their business. They had conducted the score and they didn't know how much money they had until they got to a safe house and began counting it. There are varying reports of how much money was stolen, but the final accounting of it was about $1.2 million, $1,218,000 and some change. And as I said before, that's about $29 million in today's value. And there was also some securities, some checks and all that. I think the gang ended up burning the checks and, and I don't know what happened with the securities. It would have been stupid to hold on to those, but there was so much cash that they began handing out increments of about $100,000 to the gang members that were present. Some weren't present. They had different roles in this, like Jazz Maffey wasn't present, but he was intimately involved in the heist. So he was in for a full cut 
but the guys who were actually taking the money took some money with them. Some took 20,000, some took 100,000. And don't forget $100,000 in those days was equivalent to about a million dollars in today's currency. So this was the largest score in Massachusetts history. And let me tell you, the city was on fire about it. So the robbery goes off flawlessly, or at least relatively so. The problem that the robbers got into was the fact that the guards had escaped being taped together or however they were shackled together. They escaped that pretty quickly. So the problem that presented to the robbers was they had hoped to develop some alibis and they did that, but now they had a shorter window. They had to really construct their alibis, but they seemed to do a decent job in constructing the alibis and going about their business. But the next day, the information hit the newspapers and things changed for these guys permanently. The Brinks company offered a $100,000 reward, which in today's dollars would have been about $1 million. So there was a ton of money flying around Boston, A, as the reward, and B, as the money that was just stolen by these guys. I believe the reward was the largest reward ever offered and would be again for like the next 10 or 15 years. So was a big deal. So the first reaction of the police to this robbery was to bring in the usual suspects. And they did that quite frequently in those days. They rounded up all the second story men, like they called them back in the day, all the burglars, all the robbers, guys who pulled big scores like this. And the guys from Tony Pino's crew, they provided alibis for themselves. And seemed to be going pretty well. The FBI soon became involved because and I believe the federal involvement originated here because of the stolen securities. If the robbers had left the securities, I believe this would have been a state-only beef. So you'd only really have to deal with the Boston police and you know Massachusetts State Police. There would have been no federal jurisdiction here. But Due to the fact that the securities were involved, that prompted FBI involvement. And they also worked with the Boston police in rounding up the usual suspects. So fast forward about six months, June 12th, 1950, two of the gang were arrested in Pennsylvania. And for all Tony Pino's planning, for all of the insight as to this massive heist, one thing I think they overlooked was the fact that the crew was just too large. These are lifetime criminals. They're going to continue to be criminals after this robbery. And that's where the Achilles heel was. So June 12th, 1950, two of the gang members were arrested in Pennsylvania. Spex O'Keefe and Stanley Gossicura were arrested in Toward, Pennsylvania. These two dopes couldn't stop stealing. They had just conducted the largest robbery in Massachusetts state history, but they have to go on a road trip and commit these robberies. They were arrested breaking into what appears to be a gun and clothing store in this small town in Pennsylvania. And they ended up getting arrested with the guns and the clothing. They go to local jail, no bail, so they're going to be held for trial. 
This is where the relationship of the robbers starts to fray. O'Keefe, don't forget he's the veteran, Iwo Jima, and he was a bit crazy to begin with. But he starts demanding money from the other robbers for his defense, and he claimed to have a sick sister, at least in the movie. But I believe the money he was actually demanding was mostly for his lawyers. So things end up going to trial down in Pennsylvania for these two dopes. O'Keefe ends up getting a three to five year sentence, while Gusakura gets a five to 20 year sentence. He was originally found not guilty in one county, but was shipped back to another county in Pennsylvania where he got five to 20 years in prison. This brings me to one of my favorite lines in the movie, The Brinks Job. O'Keefe is being sentenced in Pennsylvania and the judge gives him 10 years and the defendant, O'Keefe, looks at the judge and says, judge, I can't do no 10 years. Judge slams the gavel down and says, do as much as you can, son. So back to real life, this is where the relationship between Pino, the other gang members, and O'Keefe started to fall apart. O'Keefe was constantly demanding money. And if you've ever been around gamblers, robbers, crooks, they just don't want to give up any money. Even if they know they owe it to you, they don't want to pay you, right? And this guy's in prison. What's he going to do to me? He's nowhere near Boston. I shouldn't have to pay him. And so this give and take goes on and on for years. Finally, O'Keefe gets really pissed. So all that is going on in Pennsylvania. Back in Boston, Tony Pino's getting hammered. They really want Tony to flip, but he won't. He's a stand-up guy in that regard. But he's not a citizen, so they try time and time again to deport him. He had a previous beef in Massachusetts where he actually got a pardon from the governor so he wouldn't have been deported but they dreamed up some new charges for Tony and tried to get him deported it ended up going to the supreme court on his deportation case in Pino 1 so he was still in the country but the pressure was on the FBI was really turning it up and Come 1954, June of 1954, another gang member, Jazz Mafi, was arrested for tax evasion, and he was ultimately convicted and sent to federal prison. So if you remember, O'Keefe got a three-year sentence for that beef in Pennsylvania, but now he's out. On June 14th, 1954, the first of three assassination attempts on O'Keefe was initiated in Dorchester, Massachusetts. O'Keefe went to see one of the gang members, Henry Baker, and Baker had had enough of O'Keefe at this point and just started shooting. They shot back and forth at each other. Nobody was arrested or hit. But in the second attempt, June 16, 1954, 30 rounds were fired at O'Keefe. He was shot in the wrist and chest, but this assassination didn't go that well either. He lived, some say he actually shot back at whomever was shooting at him in this event, but it would have been better for the gang if Mr. O'Keefe went down for the dirt nap on that one. So during this time frame, O'Keefe gets arrested with a gun. I don't know if it's during one of these assassination events or what, but the Boston police arrest him for the local weapons beef. And this is the opening the FBI was looking for. They start to really play on the fact that 
O'Keefe had been abandoned in prison by Tony Pino and the rest of the crew. And it starts to work. By Christmas of 1955, O'Keefe is getting very friendly with the FBI, and they're impressing upon him that if he goes down on this gun charge, he's going to go away for another 20 years. He was a lifelong criminal, and he knew it. His record was horrendous, and he would have likely spent a significant amount of time in prison. So January 6th, 1956, and this was just days before the statute of limitations would expire. O'Keefe rats on Pino and everybody else. January 6, 1956, at 4.20 p.m., Mr. O'Keefe gives up the ghost on the whole gang, agrees to testify against them for a reduced sentence. Immediately, the police round up the rest of the crew, put them in handcuffs, and start trying to play them against each other as well. At this point, the FBI was looking to recover whatever was left of the money and securities. I think their interest was the securities, but they couldn't do that. Nobody else would speak to the authorities. The only rat in this crew was O'Keefe. The authorities were hot on this case. First, they impaneled a federal grand jury and received indictments for that. The state of Massachusetts impaneled their own grand jury shortly thereafter, and they received indictments in that as well. So long story short, O'Keefe points the finger at every member of the gang that he's asked to. Two of the gang members, including Stanley Gossicora, maybe it's Gossicora, I don't know. Either way, he died. Another member of the gang also passed away before trial. But eight of the original gang members were convicted and sentenced to life in prison. So in 1956, Pino, Costa, Matthew, McGinnis, Faraday, Richardson get life sentences. And they were trying to deal with these guys to get some of the money back to take some of the time away. But none of these guys would give up any information and they gutted out the rest of their lives and they did die in prison. The majority of the money from the Branks job was never recovered. There's a pretty strong rumor that one of the gang hid the majority of the money in the hills north of Grand Rapids, Minnesota. I'm not certain where that rumor comes from, but I got it from the History Channel. I don't see any indication in the FBI files that they have any idea where the money is. So just looking through the case file, if O'Keefe and Gossicoria had just stopped for a little while their criminal ways, especially in a state like Pennsylvania, the whole gang may have actually lived there remaining days on earth as millionaires and maybe their children as well. All right, guys, that's the end of the story of the Brinks job, one of my favorites. So I'm going to leave you here. If you want to get a hold of me, please feel free to contact me at barry at bostonconfidential.net. Next week, we're going to be covering the New Bedford Highway killer case from the late 1980s, I believe it was March of 1988 through 1989. And we're going to have a special guest to interview on this case, an absolute expert, really. 
I'm not at liberty to discuss it more fully right now, but I think you're going to enjoy that episode. That case is still unsolved. So make sure you tune in next week as well. All right, guys. See you soon. Bye.